Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Or, I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 6, verse 13. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood or acacia wood. Rooms shall you make in the ark, and you shall pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion of which you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, and the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. And a window shall you make to the ark, and in a cubit shall you finish it above and the door of the ark shall you set in the side thereof with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and every living thing that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant, and you shall come into the ark." Thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shall you bring into the ark. To keep them alive with thee, they shall be male and female. Of the fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten... And thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. And thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. At this point, it's been about 1,600 years since creation and then the subsequent fall of mankind. The population on the earth at this time, as men are living between 900 and 1,000 years, is probably conservatively somewhere between 6 and 10 billion people. The Bible tells us that in God's perspective, there are only two types of people that he sees living on the earth. He sees uh, the ungodly that are the descendants of Cain or represented as the descendants of Cain. And then he sees those that began to call upon the name of the Lord. So there's only two types of people that God sees. He sees the righteous and he sees the unrighteous. But by the time we come to chapter 6 of Genesis, the entire human race has devolved morally to the place where God can only find one man that he deems worthy of saving. And even him, we were told in our study last week, that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That even Noah, not a perfect man, but a man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord and that walked with God. And so the conditions on, on earth at this time are extremely dark and extremely dismal, and they've come to a point where the patience of God has been exhausted, and he is ready now to judge the world for their sin, their rebellion, and their darkness. We were told that when God looks upon the earth in these days, that he sees it characterized by wickedness before him, first of all, demonic activity, Every thought of the imagination of all people was only evil continually. 
that the earth was filled with violence through them and that every human being had corrupted their way before a living God. That that was God's assessment of humanity as he looked at the world in the days of Noah. And thus he comes to a point where he is now going to judge the world for their sin. Now it's important that we recognize that our God that we serve, although he is defined as love, and mercy, and grace, and truth, and forgiveness, and kindness. He is equally to those things also a God of justice and a God of judgment. Now, in some ways, we don't like to hear about God being a God of judgment. And I confess that that is a little disconcerting. We can become a little shaken by the fact that God is a God who judges But the comfort that I find in the truth of God being a God of judgment is that his judgment is according to truth, it's according to full knowledge, and it's according to righteousness. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verse 8, Paul writes and he talks of God as being the Lord, the righteous judge. Joel, could you put that verse up? Yeah. The the Lord, the righteous judge who will judge. And it's important that we understand that when God judges, whether it be in a local situation or whether it be judgment in an individual life or whether it be a nation or the world in a worldwide judgment, that when God does that, he does it according to righteousness. Now, you and I do not have the capacity to judge the way that God can judge. Because in order to judge in a righteous manner, you have to have all the facts and you have to be able to see all things clearly and to be able to sort it out. And to be able to do that, you need to know everything to the very smallest detail of what drives and bring things to to, to bear and to be. And God alone is the one that can do that. And thus, when God judges, God judges according to truth, and he judges according to righteousness. And thus, our God, who is a God of judgment, sees at this time that there's nothing left for this world but that it be judged. And thus, he announces to Noah that the judgment is coming. Now, verse 13 gives to us here in our passage the reason why this passage is of particular interest to us. And the reason is because he says to Noah there that the end of all flesh is come before me and that I will destroy them with the earth. And the thing that's remarkable about this is that this is a worldwide judgment that we're observing here. And it's the only time there has ever been a worldwide judgment in the history of mankind from the beginning until now. This is the only account, the only time that God has judged the whole world. And Jesus used this account, this event in human history, to point to the second time that it will happen in the end when God judges the world for the second time at the return of his son Jesus. Jesus said that as it was in the days of Noah, so also shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Meaning that there is a judgment that's coming upon the world for the sin of mankind and for his absolute rebellion in the same manner in which God did it at the beginning. We know that there is a future judgment coming. 
Now, the question that we have is, what is going to happen when God judges the world the second time? We know what he did the first time. He drowned the whole thing in a flood. But what is God going to do when he judges the world for the second time? The answer is given to us in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19. God gives us every gory detail of what's going to happen when he judges the world the second time. It's all written out for us there. And so the question isn't what's going to happen. The question many of us has is when is that judgment going to take place? And the answer to that is we don't know. But when Jesus was asked that question, he answered it by saying, as it was in the days of Noah, so also shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. So here's what we know. We know for a fact that judgment is coming upon this earth. This world has a date with the wrath of God, a righteous wrath, a judgment for sin. We know that for a fact. And we also know the conditions that bring that judgment to bear because we're told in Genesis chapter 6 what God saw that brought his judgment in the first place. Demonic prevalence, wickedness, evil imaginations continually in the hearts of men, violence and corruption. That when God sees those things come to a place where his patience is exhausted, then God will again intervene in human history and he will judge the world. I had a phone conversation with my father about uh, two, maybe three weeks ago. And he was uh, talking to me about all of the things that are going on in the world, a lot of the problems uh, that the world is facing, the, the, the saber rattling, and you know, just the various things that are happening. And he said to me, he said, Nick, what does the Bible say about God judging the world in the end? And, and two things happened when he asked me that question. One is I got extremely disappointed because we've had this conversation about 17 times, you know. <laughs> And then I got a little excited, too, because it was another opportunity to share with him the things concerning biblical truth. And I said, well, Dad, I said, the answer to that question is actually very clearly given in the Bible. Revelation chapters 6 through 19 explain that very vividly and very clearly. And you don't want to be here on the world at that time. You don't want to be on the wrong side of God when that happens, when his judgment comes. The Bible is very clear about what's going to happen. But the question that many Christians have is what happens if I'm alive when that time comes? What happens if we're here on the planet living out our existence and the patience of God is exhausted and it's time for his judgment to come? What's going to happen to save people? And you need to know this, Christian, concerning the judgment of God and you, if you know Jesus Christ here tonight is that one of the ways of God that does not change, he's the same from Genesis to Revelation, is that he does not judge the righteous along with the wicked. And the Christian has been declared righteous by God because of Jesus Christ. It's not that we're better than any other sinner in the world or that we deserve something or that we're righteous because we're more well-behaved. That's not the idea. We're declared righteous because of what Jesus did on Calvary's cross for us and that we were willing to enter into a covenant with God wherein we traded our sins for his righteousness. That's what the cross was. It was a trading. 
And when he invites us to come to him, that's what he's inviting us into. He's inviting us to give him our sins, and in exchange, he gives us his earned righteousness, and thus our names are written in heaven, and we're declared righteous by faith through grace because of the cross. And so we're righteous because of Jesus. And God will not judge the righteous along with the wicked. When God came to Abraham and he told Abraham that he was going to judge Sodom for the sin of Sodom, Abraham realized, my nephew lives in Sodom. And he's a godly man, though he's a little confused right now. And he said to God, he said, God, Far be it from you, the judge of all the earth, will you not do rightly? He said, will you judge the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous men in Sodom? Will you still judge Sodom if there's 50 righteous men in Sodom? And God said, no, I am a just God, and I will not judge the righteous with the wicked. If there's 50 men in Sodom that are righteous, I will, not, I will spare Sodom for the sake of the 50 righteous. And Abraham said, okay, what about 40? What about 30? What about 20? Got him all the way down to 10. And God said, I will not destroy Sodom if I find 10 righteous there. And Abraham did some quick math. It's said, Lot, his wife, he's got two sons, a couple of daughters. There's got to be at least 10 in Sodom. He's like, good, God, I'm good with that. And what we learn in the account of the judgment of Sodom in Genesis chapter 19 is that God sent an angel into Sodom and he grabbed Lot and his wife by the hands and tore them out before the judgment came. God removed the righteous before the judgment fell. God doesn't judge the righteous along with the wicked. When God was going to judge Egypt for their sin, he opened up the Red Sea and he brought his own people out. And when they were safely on the other side, God judged the Egyptians closing in the Red Sea upon their army. When God judged the Canaanites for their sin and dispossessed them of the land in order to give it to his people of Israel, God spared even just Rahab, one woman who lived in the city of Jericho who had faith, saving faith. And God kept one wall of the city upright so that she could live and her family, whoever is in the house, because he won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. When Canaan was being conquered by the Israelites, the Gibeonites, God saw something in the Gibeonites. And though covenantally they were to be destroyed, God made a way for a group of people within a nation that was wicked to become servants to the Israelites, and they were a benefit and a blessing and never a hindrance. God saw that, that that would be, and God spared in his providence and in his sovereignty even a godless people that he knew would be righteous. And so God doesn't judge the righteous alongside with the wicked. When we come into the New Testament, 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, God gives an amazing promise through Peter's writing. He says that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, same word as tribulations or trials or judgment, and also to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. God knows how to deliver and to insulate those that are saved and only to pour judgment upon the godless. And the great promise that's given by Paul, in, it's given by God through Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says that we, the Christian, that we are not appointed unto wrath. 
You say, okay, well, I know that a lot of the church is saved and that, yes, a lot of the church is probably maybe not saved, just playing church or they are make-believers and not real believers. But is the world really going to get so bad that all of the real Christians are gone and dead and that all that's left is ungodly people before God judges the world the second time? No, that's not the way it's going to be. And here's why. Because Jesus said that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And should righteousness through the church be diminished to the point where there's only one or a family like there was with Noah, then the gates of hell have prevailed against the church. God has a different plan of how he's going to do things when he judges the world the second time. The Bible teaches that he is going to remove his people from the earth before the judgment comes. It's a, it's a thing that we call, that the Bible teaches, it's called the rapture of the church. That the church will be taken out of the world supernaturally prior to the judgment of God falling upon it. You say, do you have scripture for that? Yes, we do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul writes to the church there and he says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not prevent them which are asleep, those who have already died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. To the Corinthian church, Paul phrases the same thing this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery, a secret. We shall not all sleep, that is, die. That's the King James word for, you know, die of natural causes. For we will not all die, but we shall all be changed. When? In a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trump or trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we, that is those that are alive at that time, shall be changed. For this corruptible, that is our fallen human bodies, must put on incorruption. That is new glorified bodies that can bear heaven. And this mortal must put on immortality. Jesus spoke of the same event in Matthew chapter 24 when he was answering the question about the end times. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And amazingly, right after Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the, the days of the coming of the Son. Right after saying that sentence, he says these words. It's Matthew chapter 24, verse 40. He says, then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other will be left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord is coming. So spoken of clearly by Jesus, twice by Paul, the Bible tells us that God's plan when he judges the world the second time is that he will first remove those that are in Christ Jesus, those that are saved from the world in a supernatural event where we, in a twinkling of an eye will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. 
Well, immediately following that, God will begin to judge a world that is now void of salt. Remember what Jesus said? He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its savor, then it, that is the earth, is good for nothing but to be trodden under the foot of men, to be broken down. And so once the salt is removed from the earth, the only thing left is for the earth to be judged. And for seven years, all of the events that are recorded in Revelation chapters 6 through 19 will begin to happen in successive and chaotic order as God begins to unleash his wrath upon a race of people that have rejected the gift of his son and that have literally stepped over his son's dead body to refuse the gift of God's salvation. And he will then judge the world because of the sin of it. That seven years will then end with a battle that's known as the Battle of Armageddon, where every survivor that makes it through that seven years congregates in the Valley of Megiddo to fight a war against God to the death, the battle to end all battles. And at that time, at the end of that seven years, Jesus will then physically return to the earth with us, praise the Lord, riding on white horses, and the battle will be over as quickly as it begins. He will fight with them with the sword that comes out of his mouth. He's wearing a thigh, a vesture dipped in blood. He's got a tattoo on his thigh that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he wins the battle of Armageddon. And the judgment is complete. The world is done in terms of this fallen present age. What happens then is that God ushers in a period of time known as the millennium. It's 1,000 years where there will be peace and prosperity in the world. The devil will be bound. He won't be able to reach humanity. Longevity of life will be restored. And for 1,000 years, we'll know life on earth as it should be. You and I in glorified bodies. An amazing time that that will be. I think it's interesting, isn't it, that the generation, the newest generation of people, they're called millennials. I like that. I'm not crazy about their attitude, you know, <laughs> but I really like that they're called millennials because I believe they probably will be millennials, you know, those that see the millennium begin. And so that's how the sequence of judgment is going to go the second time. The rapture, judgment, the return of Christ, and then the millennium, a thousand years of peace and prosperity in the world that will begin in that time. Now, the greatest question that still remains in the context of our study and for you and I tonight as we consider these things is not the question of the signs of the times. We looked at that last week. Nor what's going to happen when God judges, nor when is it going to take place. All of those things are, are, are kind of immaterial. The great question that remains for you and I tonight is what are we to do about it? What are we to do now in light of the fact that judgment is coming and that we're here as the salt of the earth in this time, what does it mean for you and I? What we have in the passage before us in Genesis 13, or 6 that we looked at tonight, the second half of the chapter, we have God interacting with Noah, and essentially there are four things that happen here in the passage. First of all, there's a revelation. A revelation is given to Noah that he is living in the last days, that judgment is pending, that God is fed up, his patience is exhausted, and that he is going to judge the world. That's a revelation that was given to Noah. 
Now, God did not say to Noah, so, Noah, therefore, sit tight, hang out, relax, because I'm going to spare the righteous from judgment, and because you have found grace in my eyes, you have nothing to worry about. So just hang out, live your life, and judgment's going to come. Just wait for the trumpet to sound. That's not what God said to Noah. Revelation, in Noah's heart and in Noah's mind, piqued his spirit, it stirred him up to inquire and to have the attitude of heart to say, God, what do you want me to do? Why are you giving me this revelation? Why have you shown me that this is going to happen in my lifetime, that I'm going to see these things? What's the purpose of the revelation? Ah, well, that brings the second thing that God gives to Noah in this passage, not just revelation, but now instruction. God says, Noah, I've got something for you to do. In light of the fact that there's judgment coming, in light of the fact that man's days are numbered, there's a task, there's a job to be done. I've got something for you to do, specifically for you. I've handpicked you and prepared you for it. And then God begins to give Noah the instructions for the ark. You're to build a boat. And then he gives to him the dimensions, the window, the door, the food, Everything that Noah's going to need in order to survive the judgment that's coming and to preserve life in its most basic form. The instruction is then followed with a promise. God gives to Noah a promise. He says, listen, your wife and your sons and their wives are going to come to you on the ark and also the animals. Noah didn't have to go out and find and chase those animals down. You know, get that picture out of your mind. God brought the animals to Noah. But the promise that God gave to Noah is that your wife, your sons, and their wives are going to come onto the ark with you. And that was a promise that Noah would need because the task that was before him would be all-consuming and God wanted him to be rest assured, to have peace of mind that his family would be secured, that they were in God's hand. And then the fourth thing that happens in this passage, and it's the key to the entire thing, if we miss it, we miss the whole reason God put it in the Bible. And it's given to us in verse 22. And it says there that Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so did he. Revelation, followed by instruction, supported with promise, was then followed up with action. Noah heard what it was that God wanted him to do in his day, and he was obedient to the call. He obeyed the command, and he did what God had then called him to do. Now, what we know, you and I, sitting here tonight, what we know and what we've been told and what we can see is that we are, in fact, living in what the Bible calls the last days. The Bible gives to us an abundance of signs that tells us what the world will look like in the days of his judgment. Geopolitical signs. We see those signs fulfilled in the world today, right before our eyes. Israel, back in the land. The alignment of nations that God said would exist just prior to his return. We see those things very clearly right before us. There are sociological signs that talk about what men will be like. In those days, the men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, rude, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, truce breakers, without natural affection, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. 
The Bible gives us those signs. We see those sociological markers indicated right before us. The technological signs of the advancement of technology in a rapid way. The people would go to and fro, that knowledge would increase. That the economy would shift from being that of tangible things to that of being invisible things. Chips being implanted under the skin prophesied in Revelation chapter 13 with such clarity. God giving to us the things that we're seeing technologically right before our eyes. The economic signs that are given, the markers, we see them fulfilled. The geological signs that were given by Jesus of strange patterns in the weather, earthquakes and uh, strange things. We see all of those things happening right before our eyes. And most of all, the moral conditions that indicate the exhaustion of God's patience. We see those things as we watch scandal after corrupt thing being revealed day by day. All of it is before us. And you and I as Christians that know Jesus Christ, that know the word of God, that are awake and alive and can see what's going on in front of us, we understand and know that we are living in the last days. And so we have a choice. Our choice is that we can sit on our hands and we can say, well, I know that the rapture is coming, the trumpet's going to sound, the horn's going to blow, and we're all going to be taken out of here. So I'm just going to live my life and sit tight until that time. And Lord Jesus, let it be tonight. Or we can allow the revelation of the truth of the reality of these things to cause us to inquire before God and to say before God, okay, God, I see what's before me. I see what your word says. I see what's coming upon the world. Why did you put me here in a time such as this? What is the purpose for my existence in humanity at this time? Am I just one that's saved by the skin of my teeth? Or did you know and calculate from the beginning of eternity past that I would be on the world in this day? And do you have something for me to do in light of the fact that we are living in the days that we are living in? And what I am certain of is that we are not called to sit on our hands and just wait for the trumpet to blow and then we're all out of here and the world gets destroyed. But that God has made each one of us with a purpose, with a calling, with a task, with something, a sphere of influence, something that we're to do to prepare in some way for that time to come. So what is it that we're to do? What is it that you're to do? Should we just build a bunch of boats? Is that what it is? The answer? I don't know. The answer? I have no idea what it is that God wants you to do. It would be extremely easy if it was that. Build a boat. Man, I love blueprints. Blueprints are awesome because you just do what the blueprint says and, and, it, and you need nothing else. But that's not what it is that God has given to us. We don't have a blueprint. What we have is a relationship. And we have an individual purpose, an individual print that is unique to ourselves, an individual call, and an individual task that is unique to our person. And God is the only one that can let you know and make you understand what it is that you're on earth for at this time. And you and I have a choice. Our choice is we can sit on our hands and we can ignore it. We can go about our daily lives. And we can bury ourselves in our activities and the things that we have in front of us. And we can just wait for that time to come and ignore the voice of the Lord. Or we, like Noah, can say, God, what is it that you want me to do? One of the most profound verses concerning Noah and his life is given in the New Testament. It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. 
And it says that by faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, prepared an ark to the saving of his family, that he was moved by fear. That when Noah realized the severity of what God was revealing to him about the days that he was living in, he couldn't sit by and by and just do nothing. It moved him in the deepest part of his being in such a way where he said, I've got to do something. I've got to do something about what you're showing me in this God. And I can't just sit on my hands. And so he said, what do you want me to do? And moved by what God had revealed, he spent a hundred years of his life and he left off everything that he had been doing up to that point and he gave himself completely to what it was that God wanted him to do because he realized that eternity was the only thing of any lasting value. And that if he was going to do anything useful at all, it was going to be the eternal thing that God had given for him. And before you and I tonight, in the days that we're living in, we have the same choice that Noah had. We can live for the temporary things of this life. Or we can throw all that aside and we can say, God, what do you want for my life? You say, well, how in the world do I discover what it is that God has for me? I believe the answer is given to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I've, turned, I've asked you to turn there. You can flip there at this time. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10... The Apostle Paul is doing something that he hated to do, and he didn't do very often. And that is that he was defending himself. You see, Paul's philosophy of life and philosophy of ministry and of Christianity is that he was what he was by the Spirit of God, and he wasn't what he wasn't by the Spirit of God. And what that meant is that Paul's value was not in the outward things of what people could see of him, but rather it was in the inward substance of what Christ had formed in his heart and was doing through his life. The advantage of that is that Paul was extremely fruitful. Everywhere he went, people were saved, churches were planted, and life was imparted. The disadvantage of that is that he was very, very, very unimpressive in his presentation and in his person. He says concerning himself that he was weak, that he was filled with fear, that his speech and his preaching was contemptible, and that he wasn't gifted eloquently to be able to speak in a way that was clear. That he didn't ever try to be something that he wasn't. He didn't carry around with him certificates of ordination or impressive clothing that would give him an audience or impress people. He simply let out the message that God had given to him, and he let the message itself do the work. And it was fruitful. It was impactful. But it caused a problem. And the problem was that it, it enabled Paul's enemies to come into the places behind him and to come with impressive presentation, to wear nice clothes, to speak with eloquence and clarity to bring forth degrees from seminaries and letters from people that commended them. And they would say, look at what we've got, the way that we talk, the education that we have, the presentation that we give. And you're going to listen to that Jewish rabbi who's sickly and can't even speak. He spits when he talks. And the people were beginning to say, yeah, you know, Paul is kind of unimpressive. And you guys really do look the part and we really could build a church with people like you. And so they were coming in and they were discrediting Paul because his appearance, 
his eloquence were not up to par with what the cutting-edge guys were doing in his day. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians, whom he loved and spent a year and a half establishing them in their faith, whom now had they had turned their backs on Paul because of these other people that had come in, and Paul begins to defend his ministry. And what he gives in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians is a very systematic approach to life in his mind and heart. He says, this is who I am. No, I'm not impressive. No, I'm not polished. No, I'm not eloquent. But these are the things that make me who I am. And here's why I turn us to this passage tonight. Because if we will hear what Paul says here, and we will do the things that Paul did and make this our emphasis and our focus, then, listen, it is impossible for us to not discover what it is that God wants us to do in the days that we're living in. If you follow Paul's pattern that he lays out here, you will absolutely find out what it is that God has for you specifically to do in the days awaiting his return. You say, so what are they? What are the five things? And there's five things in this chapter that Paul says concerning his life that made him the fruitful man that he was that we also can adapt and learn for ourselves. The first one is given to us in the first four verses of the chapter, and that is that Paul lived a spirit-filled life. And you can write that down. He lived a spirit-filled life. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, Now I, Paul, myself beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who, speaking of himself, in presence and base among you, meaning humble, meaning mild, meaning not impressive, But being absent, I'm bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I'm present with the confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Meaning that there's those that look at us and they think, man, they got nothing. Fleshly outward appearances is all they were measuring by. Paul says, on the contrary, verse 3. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, meaning that we live a physical existence, you guys are looking at me right now in the flesh. You're seeing the presentation that I'm giving to you in the flesh, my mannerisms, the diction and the dynamics of my voice. All of those things are the outward things, the fleshly presentation of it. We walk in the flesh, and all of us here right now are in the flesh in the outward thing. Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Our fight, our life, our purpose, our motivation, our drive, our desire, the power that comes out of our life does not come from the fleshly things that everyone else sees. We do not war after the flesh. For, verse 4, the reason why we don't war after the flesh, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. This is not an outward thing. This church thing, this ministry thing, this Bible study and Bible teaching thing, this is not studying things and reporting and regurgitating facts that you learn somewhere else. This isn't carnal. It's not outward, but rather it's mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Paul said, what I live in What drives and motivates my life, what moves me to do what I do and be who I am is not what people see on the outside, but it's who God has made me on the inside. That's what matters. 
I live in dependence upon his Holy Spirit. I live in the power and in the authority of what he has put in me and what he is in me and what he does through me. That's where the source and substance of my life comes from. It comes from living in dependence on him. And listen, Christian, that is the birthright of every single child of God. The promise is to you and to your children and to as many as are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call, Peter said on the day of Pentecost. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, he said, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those that ask him? And for you and I, it is our birthright to live and walk and breathe and serve in the power of God's Holy Spirit, not in the weakness of our flesh or in the outwardness of what we present. And daily we are called to submit to him for his baptism of power. Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses for me. Not you'll go witnessing for me. You'll be witnesses for me. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts. Have you asked him for his baptism? Have you come to him in simple faith and said, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want to live the life of spiritual power. I don't care what I am on the outside. God, I want to be what you made me to be on the inside. Have you come to him in that way? Do you and I, do we daily live our lives beginning on our knees saying, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit today. God, today I don't want to live in the power of my flesh and human ability, but I want to live in the strength and in the power of your Holy Spirit. This day, today, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Drive me, motivate me, move me by who you made me to be. Do we do it? Paul did. And it's what made him who he was. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. It's not a degree. It's not education. It's not money. It's not open doors. It's not a sphere of influence. It's the spirit of the living God pulsating within my life that makes me effective for God. And it is the birthright of the Christian to have it. And if we're not walking in the power of his spirit, it is not because he's withholding. It's because we're not asking or surrendering or giving ourselves to be who he's made us to be. Paul did. He was a man who lived in the power of the Spirit. The second thing that Paul gives as a pattern of his existence and why he was who he was is because he gave himself to a continual growth of a consecrated life. Notice what he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. He says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness being ready to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you know Christian that there are two influences in this world that are seeking to have control over your life? There is the worldly influence that comes into us through media, through entertainment, through worldly things, through music and secular influences, education and philosophies and the rest. And all of those things are seeking to exalt themselves against the second force that's seeking to have us, and that is the Spirit of Christ, His kingdom, His ways, His purpose, and His person. And we will yield to one or the other, and we are called to lead a consecrated life. What's a consecrated life? It means that we are growing less and less attached to the influence and the things of this world and at the same time being more and more possessed by the influence and person of the king himself and of his kingdom and of his ways. And Paul said that this is the way that I live my life. 
is that every high thing that comes before me that exalts itself against knowing him, I take it captive, I put it under my feet, and I surrender it before him that he might have complete control within my life. And you and I are called to lead a consecrated life. We are not to share our affections, our time, our love with the things of this world and the things of God in some proportionate way. But we are called to surrender to him completely. How do we do that? Number one, we've got to know his word. We've got to know what he wants and what's the value to him, right? And then the second thing, we need to be in surrendered submission to his spirit and his spirit's promptings in our life. Let me ask you this question. What is it that God is working on in you right now? When I say that, probably it comes right into your mind. You know exactly what it is. The area of your life that he's seeking to have control over that there's a battle for. The high thing that is exalting itself against God in your life tonight. What is it? What we are called to do is by the Holy Spirit of God, we're to take it, bring it into captivity, label it for what it is, and by the power of his spirit, put it under our feet and bring it to him in submission and say, God, I give this part of my life to you. Take it, defeat it, conquer it, and conquer me, and let's move on to the next thing. But sadly, how many of us do we go around the mountain and we say, well, I kind of like this. And Lord, if you wrestle me a little bit harder for it, maybe I'll let go. But for now, let's just share some space and share some time. Listen, listen. You will sit idle. And you will never discover the fullness of the purpose that God has for you in this world right now, as long as that's the case. We're called to constantly be growing in consecration towards him. The growth of a consecrated life. The third thing that Paul talks about in verses 7 through 12 of 2 Corinthians is that we're to give the supreme attention to who we are in the secret place and not in the public place. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 7. He says, do you look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. That's a jab at his enemies, by the way. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord has given us for edification and not for destruction, I will not be ashamed. That I might not seem as if I would terrify you by my letters, for his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a one think this, that such as we are in word by letters when we're absent, such will we also be indeed when we are present. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Can you guys hear what Paul is saying in that? He's saying, listen, all of you who are so concerned with the outward appearance of things, what do people think when they see me? What is the impression that they have when they're around me? Isn't that the common perception that we kind of live under? It's like we want to put forth the best me that I can. Paul said, ah, I don't care. He goes, I don't care what you think when you look at me. You say my speech and my preaching is contemptible and that my bodily presence is weak. He goes, I don't care what you see. Do we look on things after the outward appearance? He's saying, listen, these people that come to you and they impress you with what they say and how they look and what they can put on and how smart they are in the whole thing, he says, they live their lives comparing themselves with one another and trying to impress you and compete with one another, and the result is that they're absolutely fruitless in their life. 
He says, I will look to the inner man. I will be consecrated before Jesus Christ in the secret place. I will be what I'm supposed to be before him alone. And I'll let what comes out of my life come out of my life on the other side of that. And let me ask you this. What was the name of one of Paul's enemies and what good did they do for the world? Nothing. And yet Paul who said, I will concentrate on the inner man. I will have integrity before God. I will give myself to what he alone can see that no one else can see that's on the inside of my heart. That's what I'm going to hang my hat on. And in that, Paul led a productive life, and he knew exactly who he was and what he was supposed to do. And I submit to you, Christian, that that is to be the emphasis of every single one of us that are sitting in this room tonight hearing these words being spoken. It is not about what people see when they look at our lives that matters and will affect eternity. It is not about how we impress people and the impression we make upon them through what we say or what we look like. None of that means anything. What will be lasting is what we are on the inside that we have allowed him to change in us and all of the good that comes out of our life will start there and not in the outward expression. That's the call. Now here's the amazing thing about this. Let's back up for a minute. Five things, right? We've looked at three. Not one of them yet has anything to do with anything Paul has done. It all has to do with the inner man, a spirit-filled life, a consecrated life, integrity in the heart, in the secret place where only God can see. Those are the most important things concerning discovering what it is that God wants us to do. You could build 10 arcs. You could plant 20 churches. You could write a thousand books. You could be on every TV station in the entire world and be the most famous preacher, Christian, evangelist, whatever you want to be. You could be all those things if you are not spirit-filled, consecrated, and real in your heart and not in the outward, then everything else you do comes to nothing. It comes to nothing. To nothing. There's a Calvary Chapel pastor in Fort Lauderdale, Florida built one of the biggest churches in the country, 20,000 people. A ministry that had tentacles in every part of South Florida. It was one of the most fruitful and productive things anyone could look at, study, and be impressed with. The pastor and founder of that church lacked these three things. And you know where he is today? Unemployed and fruitless. Because what we are on the inside is what makes a difference, not what people see on the outside. Now, once that's under his control, now we get into what it is that God wants us to do. Paul says this, moving on. And it's number four in our list of five things that were given to Paul. And number four is given to us in verses 13 through 16, and that concerns his will and his work through you. What does God want you to do now? Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, but we will not boast of things outside our measure, but according to the measure of the rule or ruler, which God has distributed to us a measure to reach even to you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reached not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things outside or beyond our measure, that is, of other men's labors, but having hope 
that when your faith is increased, that we will be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's line of things that has been made ready to our hand. What Paul says here in this section of it is he says, listen, he says that God has given to us a measure. Now that's about as generic as it can get, isn't it? He doesn't even say what the measure is until you get into the latter part of the passage. And then he says that our measure, the thing that God has given to us, is that he's given us a ministry and boundaries of a ministry that reach as far as to you. And at this point, Corinth was the furthest point that Paul was allowed by God to go preaching the gospel. And so Paul says, that's my measure. God gave me an ark to build. He said, Paul, go plant churches. You're going to start in Asia Minor. Paul did it. He was faithful to do it. God enlarged the territory, and he said, okay, now cross over into Europe. Reach Philippi, Thessalonica, that region beyond. And he went that far. Then God said, good, you've been faithful. Now go as far as Greece into Corinth. And so Paul went to Athens and then subsequently to Corinth, and he planted a church there. And at the point of this writing, Paul says, that's the furthest that God in his call on my life has allowed me to go. That's my measure. And I have been faithful in that measure, and here's my hope. My hope is that now that I've been faithful in it, God will enlarge it even more so that I can go beyond you and reach the regions that are further and not to do something else that someone else might have done or is doing or would be concerned with. So what's the point? What's Paul saying? He's saying, I have discovered in my relationship with God what it is that he has called me to do. And I will be faithful to do what he has called me to do within the boundaries of that calling. I will not be concerned with what anybody else is doing or not doing or what's not being done or what is being done. I will take what he has given me and I will use it to the fullest of my capacity. And as he enlarges my sphere, I will go where he leads. So how does that apply to you and I? Listen, if you are a Christian here tonight, God has given you a measure, a gift, gifts, a desire, a sphere of influence, a place where you can be used of him, something that motivates you to serve in a capacity in his name. He's given you something because he doesn't leave us as orphans. We all have something. What we're called to do is use it. Begin to use your gift. What do you want to do for Christ? Start to do it. And as you do, and you're faithful in it, God's going to enlarge it. He's going to use it, expand it, grow it, Make it clear what you've been called to do, and he's going to make an ark out of your life or give you an ark to build out of your life. But start doing. Somebody said one time that God can't lead a parked car. I love that. Well, God, what do you want me to do? Start doing, and you'll find out what it is that God wants you to do. From the time that I first got saved, from the very beginning, the first day, I had such a desire to share with other people the things that I was learning about God and his word. I was driven to do it. I couldn't not do it. I was annoying because I was telling Christians simple things that they already knew and apologizing for it. I would just say, I, I know you already know this, but I've got to tell you the things that I'm learning. And it would just come out, you know, all this truth. And I didn't even know that that was the beginning of a calling. I was using what God put in me to do. Then there was a home fellowship. Someone said, hey, teach a home Bible study. I said, I'm 19 years old. Are you sick? <laughs> okay, I'll do it. And God gave me that boundary of a home Bible study. And the influence 
expanded and it grew. And where I am now, this is where God has me doing what he's got me doing. And I'll be faithful to do what God has called me to do. I don't care what anybody else is doing or what I'm not doing. I'll do what he's given me to do and I'll let him drive and govern it from there where it goes. If you want to know what God wants you to do, start doing what's in front of you right now and do it faithfully. And as he leads and opens the doors, walk through them. Number five, and it's where Paul closes out the chapter in verse 17 and 18, is that he lived life backwards. He says, but he that glories, let him glory in the Lord, for not he that commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. The Bible says that one day you and I are going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to be judged, not for sin, not punished, but evaluated based upon the things that we did while we were in the world in this life. And the goal of every Christian ought to be to hear the words of Jesus, to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. And if we make that the motive and drive of our life to hear those words from Jesus, then it is impossible for us to not discover what it is that he wants for us to do. If I am supremely consumed with fulfilling his will and call in my life in the days that I am living in, then I will hear those words and I'll discover what it is that he wants me to do. So what's the conclusion of our study tonight as we close? And the musicians can come as we wrap up our service. Is that God is going to judge the world. Judgment is coming. We are living in the last days. And I would implore you tonight that if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus, and I don't know why you're, you know, you're here tonight, or you know, if it's just a, a thing for you or you were invited, but if you don't know Jesus Christ personally and you have never come to him and made that transaction of saying, Lord Jesus, I need you to forgive my sin. And if you're saying to me, Lord, that you took my place on the cross in punishment and that you'll take my sins and give me your righteousness... I would implore you tonight to do that. Don't waste time living for a world that is ultimately going to be destroyed. Because that's where this world's going. Not one thing in this planet is going to last. If you don't know him, give your life to him. If you do know Jesus Christ here tonight, and I would imagine that most of us probably do on a Wednesday night, coming to a Bible study, then one day you're going to stand before him. And the only thing that's going to matter in your eternity is what you did that was in his will and according to his call upon your life in this world. So let me ask you this. If the trumpet were to sound right now, who would you be as you stand before him in that moment? Would you be the one who's consumed, caught up in the cares of this life, choked out by the thorns, used to be fruitful, used to be loving God, used to be immersed in his truth and infatuated with his person, his kingdom, and his ways, loving his people, loving his fellowship, loving his church, but no longer because the world has had its grip. The high things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God have grabbed a hold of your life and they've become the supreme influence. Would that be his assessment of you as you stand before him hearing the trumpet sound if it were tonight? Perhaps you would be the person who's backslidden caught up in some iniquity that turned into a foothold and a stronghold of sin. The deception of the devil, the darkness of the present age, one of those of whom the Bible says that in the last days there will be a falling away, an apostasy, 
Would that be you if the trumpet were to sound tonight? Perhaps you'd be the one of whom Jesus said that would be idle. The five foolish virgins that were sleeping without oil in their lamps. The ones who were sitting by the wayside, just sitting on their hands, waiting for the trumpet to blow, knowing the days that they were living in. But yet idle and sleeping because they're not moved by fear, seeing those things that are coming upon the earth. Or would maybe a small margin of us, hopefully, maybe, maybe after tonight we might be, the spirit-filled, sanctified, consecrated, growing, faithful, using our gifts, serving his name, doing what it is that he's called us to do, hearing his words, well done, good and faithful servant. What did it cost Noah to respond to the revelation that was given to him concerning his days? He was 500 years old when God said build a boat. You can accrue a lot of hobbies in 500 years. You can be consumed with a lot of life. But at the asking, God gave Noah something to do that would be all-consuming. It would cost him the laying down of everything else that he would have deemed important up to that time and to give himself completely to what it is that God called him to do. I personally am very thankful that he did it because I wouldn't be here if he didn't, you know. But let me ask you this. Who might one day say that they're very thankful that you answered the call of God to give your life completely to him? Because if you hadn't, someday they might not be in heaven. Because just as much as Noah's obedience affects you and I directly today, our obedience affects someone else tomorrow. And we don't know how much time we have left. So as we close the service, it's a great opportunity if the Spirit of God is saying to you in some way in his meek and gentle voice, there's more. There's more. I've got something for you. Would you respond? Would you hear? Would you heed? Would you come? Would you live? Would you grow? The altar is open. As the song is sung, if you just want to do some business with God, Lord, I need to consecrate. Lord, I need to repent. Lord, I need to change. Lord, I need your Holy Spirit. I've been living in the flesh. I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I'm not what I'm supposed to be. I don't want to be idle. Lord, fill me. Lord, change me. Lord, use me. Father, we thank you tonight for this word. Let it stir us. Let it move us. Let it change us. Let it affect us. We love you. We need you. I pray, Lord Jesus, right now for this whole congregation. Pray for this room. Oh, Lord, that you would give us a newness. You would revive us. That you would fill us again. Oh, Lord, let many hearts be turned to you tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Let's stand.